All right, welcome back. This is almost over, right? Our very last capsule where we actually learn things, um, at least things that are substantive in nature. And although I'm gonna address all the readings for this, um, for this session, I'll focus mostly on the case of Fraser v. Canada, which you only had to read the head notes for. Um, of course, I did read the whole thing, um, as, as any frankly practicing lawyer would have done um, prior to teaching a class on this, right? But I reread it carefully. I'll cite you to some paragraphs that I think are interesting, that I think highlight things that we learned about, or right that are contrasts to what we learned about. But of course, none of this you had to look at in the first place. But anyway, there's no exam on this. You don't really care. Um, so two other readings are on intersectionality. So you see, right, the theoretical framework that we looked at before. Supreme Court said, right, you can be the victim of discrimination based on more than one enumerated or analogous ground. Therefore, if a law says you get benefits if you are, say, a black woman, right? Well, or don't get benefits if you're a black woman, right? That might be discrimination on the basis of race and gender. And the question came up, right, before the Supreme Court at some point, right? We saw that in a reading as to whether or not that prevented there from being discrimination. If the charter just said, right, you're protected against discrimination based on, here's the list of things, right, enumerated or analogous grounds, doesn't say and or, right, doesn't say you can combine them, and so the question came up. Supreme Court said, of course, why? Because it furthers that underlying paradigm of substantive equality, right? We want people to be more equal, and we want people to be equal in effect, not just formally but in the actual effect and outcome, we want people to be more equal. So, Supreme Court said, right, obviously that is further served by allowing there to be discrimination based on more than one enumerated or analogous ground. What you saw in the other two readings for this session is kind of the theoretical framework behind that, right? We call that intersectionality. Intersectionality is about, right, First, how our identities are constituted, right? Who we are, and of course, who we are depends on a lot of things, right? Depends on how we grew up, what we do for a living. Also depends on things that are not related to ability, right? Supreme Court, all judges say that in different ways, and they're including in their dissenting opinions, right? Not related to ability. If you don't get to do things because you're a woman, it's not related to ability. If you don't get to do things because you're African-Canadian, same thing, right? Not related to your ability. But regardless, in society, right, mainly because we had slavery and various other things, right, these things do determine what you can or cannot do in an unfair, discriminatory way. And so these things also come to constitute one's identity in the sense of, right, their experience of life, right? Second, your identity then comes to define, right, the barriers you face in life. And these barriers to access to the same thing are generally stronger if you're in some particular groups. And intersectionality says they're even worse if you're part of more than one group that has traditionally experienced greater barriers if you're a black woman, right, for instance. So the Fraser case, right, is going to 
um, this is not um, a secret, hopefully, right, somewhat push Section 15 jurisprudence further in a lot of ways, right? So I'm not going to pretend that, right, I can list all of them, but there's a few significant ways. First, there's a broadening, perhaps, this is my opinion, you might disagree, of substantive equality of right, what we consider to be this kind of intersectional discrimination. So you'll recall in a case, um, in an earlier case of the Supreme Court, right, someone had said successfully before the Supreme Court, very early after the Constitution was amended, someone had said, hey, this is not really discrimination based on gender, it's discrimination based on pregnancy, right, because people were excluded based on pregnancy. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, not gender per 15.1. Then the Supreme Court repeatedly rejected that interpretation because it was wrong, right? Namely because only women get pregnant, right? As the dissenting judges say here, this is not really what's happening, right? This is not as simple an argument. And in that sense, we're kind of extending incentive equality under the precedence we saw, right? Because here, right, it's not something that's intrinsic, right? If you said only women have vaginas, that, that would have been likely correct in a, in a similar way as, right, only women get pregnant. Here, that's not really what you're saying. You're saying women bear a disproportionate burden of household and childcare responsibilities. That's a fact, right? That's a fact, right? Um, all the judges agree, the research agrees, the data agrees, right? Everyone agrees. However, right, this is not really by virtue of being a woman. It's by virtue of the ways in which being a woman is socially constructed in society in the sense that I gave you as an example on Monday and then I just gave you as an example a few minutes ago, right, under that theory of intersectionality. Being a woman does not intrinsically, right, limit you, does not mean that you should make less money. Society says you should make less money. It's not, being a woman is not related to ability. And in that sense, right, any distinction or disadvantage might be discrimination under 15 for that very reason, right? Same thing here, right? Being a woman does not mean biologically that you have to do all the work at home. It's not an intrinsic characteristic. It's not related to being a woman. It's related to, right, being a woman in a broader sense, in the sense of how society unfairly imposes various consequences upon you as a result of the fact that you're a woman. In other words, not something that would naturally happen in a cave, or not necessarily naturally happen in a cave. And so the court readily finds here though, right, that even though that's the case, and more importantly, even though that changes, right, it's not an immutable characteristic in the same sense. Of course, being pregnant, right, is related to the immutable characteristic of being a woman, right? But here, right, that's changed. It's gotten better. Nonetheless, court is willing to find that to be a violation of equality under that paradigm that we saw. And arguably, it's not something the court would have done um, under prior precedent. More importantly, if you read the case, if you read the dissenting opinions, you probably didn't, right? I should be happy if you <laughs> read the readings I assigned because you're not being tested on this. But um, if you read the dissenting opinions, you see very cogent arguments, perhaps, that the majority was first wrong in um, math or accounting, right? 
namely Daft Justice Abella writing for the majority, who did not really consider the actual consequences of what she's saying, right, in terms of, right, the tangent plan actually working differently because of that decision, um, and the, in that it would work in, a, in an unfair way, basically because your, your entitlement to a pension doesn't really depend on how many hours you work, and it's a problem for all sorts of reasons, right? Um, so courts, uh, the dissenting judges say, this is right shoddy reasoning, basically, right? They also say she wanted to make a political decision. I wouldn't go further. I don't think that's really helpful for the purposes of my argument, right? But um, the dissenting judges say, this is a shoddy argument, right? You didn't think this through. More importantly, what all this means is there's basically a relaxing of the standard. We're more willing to find substantive equality and we're willing to find it on less evidence, right? She's basically gonna say, right, you don't have to prove the relationship between the two things or causation. That's pretty obvious, right? Obviously, you can't really prove that being a woman is, um, is as a result, means that you have more household and childcare responsibilities. It's just kind of common sense there, right? Because, again, as I said, because of the ways in which our identities are constituted, it's not the only thing that's gonna matter. People experience barriers and discrimination based on that, right? So being a woman is going to be a strong determinant of whether you face these barriers, not the only one. You can't prove causation in that narrow sense. But Justice Bell's also going to say, we can make assumptions linking the two that are also pretty far from causation, arguably. And she says, right, we can rely on qualitative or other sorts of non-statistical evidence when right, there's not sufficient evidence to link the two. And so in that sense, right, there's arguably a redefinition of substantive equality, at least the dissenting judges would say that, in a different way than we saw in prior cases. So in prior cases, the court was willing to expand what equality meant, right? Substantive equality, we know what it means, right, at first, right? The court said that in very early Supreme Court precedents that we read, right? So the court said, right, means that you don't have to be treated the same. In fact, being treated the same might be discrimination because, right, because of their, um, because of their identities, people face differing barriers to doing the same thing in society. And so making them equal is actually unfair because it doesn't consider the fact that they have, that they face different barriers to access to certain things, right? So um, the, that, that's, what the court, um, that's what the court says in very early um, Supreme Court precedents. More importantly, right, the court's willing to find that various things are violations of substantive equality. So it expands the concept in that sense, right? Expand the concept in saying, right, how much of the factual circumstances do we consider in assessing whether there's substantive discrimination? And second, in saying, right, that more groups can be considered to be traditionally disadvantaged and therefore protected under Section 15. Here, arguably, the court goes further than a broadening of the definition of substantive equality. It also, right, lowers the evidentiary burden even further. So you'll recall we talked about judicial notice, we talked about, right, 
logic, as the court calls it, which are two devices that the court uses to bridge gaps in the evidence, right, to make decisions about things when there isn't otherwise clear and convincing evidence to that effect, right? So arguably, as we said, these things are used to lower the evidentiary burden, at least in a way that is lower than what you might find in some other civil contexts, and also in some other constitutional contexts where plaintiffs are not as like, disadvantaged. And arguably, you might say that that's absolutely justified because substantive equality is meant to be protecting people who are disadvantaged and right, don't have the resources to go to court, for instance. Here, court relaxes the standard even further, is willing to assume right, relationships between things that are further apart in finding that there is discrimination, in finding that there's a clear relationship between here, right, your entitlement to a pension in a very specific context of part-time work, not all part-time work, right? And specifically, as the dissenting judges say, arguably within a scheme broadly, that was created specifically for the purpose of helping, right, alleviating that disproportionate burden of childcare and household responsibilities upon women. Courts willing to find that to be discriminatory, that to be a violation of substantive equality in the, in the details, and, right, making assumptions in the relationship between these things, right? You might say these assumptions are justified, but still as a lowering, arguably, of the evidentiary burden, and the court's willing to make these findings in, right, in, in the presence of less, in, in less right, convincing or clear evidence. You also have interesting things that we didn't talk about. So you'll recall some of the indicia that we discussed under 15.1, right? Um, some of them included, right, a stereotype, right? Um, court says, and this is correct, that the jurisprudence has evolved. Of course, we can't see the entirety of Section 15 because you would have been drowning in Supreme Court cases, right? But um, the reality is the court has also right, um, changed these criteria over time to look at a more fact-sensitive um, um, analysis of the barriers faced by people as opposed to these ideas of stereotype and right, some of the other indicia that we initially saw under 15.1, under the 15.1 test. And of course here, interestingly, right, um, Supreme Court is very bold there. Um, he has a good majority of the judges, not 5-4, right, but good majority of the judges, but is willing to say, right, that the federal court and the federal court appeal were wrong, right, basically finds the other way. And for reasons that we saw, right, there's reasons why these um, lower level courts are at a better, right, standpoint in assessing discrimination, right, because they make findings of evidence, right. Um, courts of appeal, this is easy to forget once you get the Supreme Court, arguably, right? But courts of appeals are not there to get give you a second ticket that can, not there to redo the trial. What does redo the trial means, right? Rehear witnesses, relook at the evidence, all the boring, tedious, long, and expensive work that happens. We don't want that to be done over and over again because that would be right cost prohibitive even more than it actually than it currently is for people who don't have right the funds to finance that. And so courts of appeal don't give you a second kick at the can. They just look at whether, right, 
the first instance courts were wrong. And very interestingly here, the Supreme Court finds that, right, the two lower level courts who had a greater um, exposition to the evidence, whether that was the testimony or the experts, but also the evidence, the evidence there, right, the statistics, right, the evidence disadvantage, that both were wrong in applying, right, the court's jurisprudence. Arguably, if you read the dissents, there is a cogent argument to be made that really the court was reweighing all these things as opposed to just applying its jurisprudence, which the latter is what it's entitled to do under judicial review, under right, a less deferential standard. And quite importantly here, this is a broadening of substantive equality. This is a broadening of how we apply substantive equality in the absence of causative or other convincing statistical evidence that clearly links the two things here, namely sex and right, um, these responsibilities. And that's because this is all based on sex, right? So there is no new ground here. There's no ground about family status, right? That might have been an argument in that case. It's not the argument that the people made, right? The lawyers for um, Ms. Fraser did not make that argument, right? If they did, it would have been a different story. You could have decided on that. And there's very clear argument to be made here that there might be discrimination based on, right, um, family status. And that would have had to be recognized as an analogous ground. This is not what's happening here. This is sex. Sex is enumerated. It's one of the things in 15.1 and 15.2. Therefore, you don't have to prove it. Prima facie, if you show discrimination, it's one of the things you can discriminate upon. You don't have to show that as a further step. And this is all discrimination based on sex. It's not about family status. It's not about household responsibilities. Instead, and that's where the bound is, right? The, the leap is, right? This is directly related to sex, a court says. Court says we don't have to recognize family status because it's clear here that the disproportionate impact of this is on women, and that is sex, which is an enumerated ground. Interestingly, family status is one of the things, analogously to what we looked at on Monday, that is protected under human rights code. So to the extent that it's not yet protected under the charter, Right? You can have human rights codes, which are provincial pieces of legislation, which often go further than the charter in making protections. As we said, there's other disadvantages to human rights codes because they're not constitutions. One of the things, right, beyond gender um, expression that are generally protected under human rights codes are family status independently, not as sex, not as gender, right? But specifically as the independent ground of family status. And as the dissenting judges say here, the main impact of that is that you don't have to make that relationship, which might be hard to show with causation or statistical evidence, but it's also that anyone can make the same claim as Ms. Fraser. For instance, right, um, single parents, whether they're men or women, might have the same impact as Ms. Fraser here might need to be on a right, reduced work schedule because they have disproportionate care of child care responsibilities, right? That makes sense. If you're the only parent, right, regardless of your gender, you have more work, right? You're not protected under this precedent if you're not a woman. Same for 
same-sex couples, right? All sorts of other um, uh, family arrangements that might result in one of the partners, right, having more of the responsibilities. So dissenting judges are going to make much of this, right, lack um, or their perceived lack of, right, correlation between the factors and the ways in which that affects, right, the majority's willingness to lower the evidentiary burden, which is an argument that might be correct, at least to some extent, right? First, they're going to say things that often they say, not particularly um, surprising, unusual, or interesting. They're going to say that it's a rhetorical cover, right? Basically, rhetorical means, right, argumentative, right? You're arguing things, right? You're trying to convince people, right, as opposed to relying on facts or evidence, right? Um, kind of like a snake oil, snake oil salesman, right? Um, this is not unusual for more quote-unquote right-leaning judges to say, right? Um, of course, it's not unusual for some judges to have a view of the court that is more limited, less interventionist, right? All within this paradigm of substantive equality where the Constitution says courts have to be pretty interventionist, right? All this not unusual, not particularly interesting, right? Because um, it's things that courts usually say. What's more interesting is what the dissenting judges are going to say collectively, and especially Brown and Rowe, right? In the first dissent about essentially 15-2, about the ways in which trying to go too far, more specifically, the ways in which judges trying to go too far in pushing for equality, in striking down laws, right, or imposing um, burdens upon governments. But again, as we saw, right, the main ways in which you impose burden upon governments is by striking down laws, right, which is not a good thing when the law does something that you want it to do, right? And 15.2 is there specifically for the government to eradicate discrimination, as we saw, progressively, right? It's there not just to prevent, say, white people from saying this benefit for autistic kids is unfair to me, right? And there's obviously no correlation between being white and being autistic, right? But uh, non-disabled kids, right? Um, correct myself here. Uh, non-disabled kids to say, right, this is unfair to me because you're providing a specific benefit to um, autistic kids, right, for instance. That is not allowed under 15.2, because 15.2 says the government can do just that, can draw a distinction, and a discriminatory distinction within the meaning of the 15.1 test, right, um, in a way that benefits certain people if it's in furtherance of substantive equality, and we saw the test for that. Underlying this also, you have this idea that the government should be able to eradicate discrimination progressively. And so the other thing 15.2 does is some other disadvantaged groups, right? Say, right, a lot of kids can't go to court and say, this should help me as well. Even though it might be true, even though they might be more disadvantaged, they can't go to court and try to get a program to help them as well. Because 15.2 specifically provides for the ability to, of governments to help certain groups, and to help certain groups in the order it wants, and even by starting not with those who are the most disadvantaged. And the dissenting judges are going to make a very interesting argument that here, right, striking down a pension scheme, for the reasons I mentioned earlier, that ostensibly wants to help women, 
right, by saying some sorts of part-time statuses, which you might be into by virtue of your, right, um, greater household or childcare responsibility, certain statuses, right, you can get pension benefits under. Here it's just a specific type of part-time work that you don't get benefits under. I'm oversimplifying things here, right? Um, ostensibly, the reason why some get benefits is because, right, the RCMP, and namely the government, right, which runs the RCMP and passes this pension plan, right, wanted there to be an ability for people to have to stay home, right, um, for some of the time and still get these benefits. And so the dissenting judges make a very interesting argument that here you're striking down a program that's essentially ameliorative, not in the full-on specific sense of meeting the 15-2 task, but still ameliorative. And therefore, right, you're, you're basically saying, as the majority judges, the government didn't go far enough. And the presidential impact of that, according to the dissenting judges, is going to be that every time the government doesn't go far enough, right, it's going to get struck down. And that is going to have what they call a chilling effect, right, but more um, mutedly, right, is going to have an impact, perhaps, on the likelihood that the government will try to pass these ameliorative programs in the first place, right? Basically, the argument is the government's going to say, why would we bother if it's going to be, right, if we're going to get into constitutional trouble with this? Why don't we spend our time doing other things like building bridges, right, or not helping groups who have been traditionally disadvantaged? Justice Cote, last dissenting judge, I won't go over the dissent in great detail, of course you only read the handout for this, but um, it's going to go over this idea, right, um, that I mentioned, right, so you'll recall I said, right, that um, this is discrimination based on gender, not family status, and by virtue of that, it's only women who bear this proportionate um, burden here, who are, right, being discriminated against, not um, single parents or, right, um, or same-sex couples or other sorts of family arrangements. We won't get into this, but by virtue of how the decision affect the pension scheme, they might be protected in the end. They probably are, but for our purposes, right, here it is discrimination based on gender sex, which is a protected enumerated ground. Justice Cote is going to go further and say, right, this correlation between the two factors is not correct specifically because it's not just women who have a disproportionate burden of, um, of household responsibilities. Interestingly, all of the dissenting judges are going to agree with substantive equality because, as I said, we don't have right, the same political divides in the Canadian Supreme Court as we do in the United States Supreme Court from the cases you read, namely because our Constitution was passed very um, um, very uh, a short time ago, 1982, therefore the canons of interpretation are not what people thought or cannot be, more importantly, what people thought in 1820 or 1867, right? And the Constitution itself enshrines paradigms that are interventionist, judicially interventionist, and left-leaning, progressive, right? At least in some sense, right? And so therefore, 
there isn't much debate on this. There isn't a judge on the Supreme Court that says, right, oh, we got substantive equality wrong, let's go back to formal equality. Like, regardless of their views, the, the case law and the, the provision, the context, um, the legislative history and context of provisions, right, don't really allow for that. Um, so all the dissenting judges, of course, here are going to agree with, first, substantive equality, and second with the fact that women do bear a disproportionate share of household and child care responsibilities. And if you look very carefully at the reasoning, I don't think they're just saying this to right, convince you. I think they actually do agree. And so their interpretation, as Roe and Brown specifically state, and I think that's correct. This is my opinion, right? No one really cares about my opinion. This is my opinion, right? I think what they're saying is mostly correct. What they disagree on is not the statistical argument. It's not the fact that women do bear a greater share of household and child care responsibilities. It's just, first, the role of the court, the extent to which the court can and should intervene, which, of course, can be an issue with political underpinnings, and second, the interpretation of the case law, because the case law says certain things, but in applying the principles to the specific facts of the case, which, as Ms. Fraser says, this pension plan discriminates against me, there's no clear answers, right? That's what Supreme Courts do. That's what lawyers do, right? They interpret things, and interpreting, right, you kind of change the principle. That's the nature of the common law, and there's no hard and fast answer. And so, even though you agree on the underlying principles in case law, namely substantive equality, you might disagree on the result as it applies to the specific facts of the case of right, Ms. Fraser getting discriminated against or purportedly getting discriminated against. And so that's it. You also have a very interesting discussion, which I won't get into again. You only read the end notes for this of the standard of review, right? Of the extent to which, right, Justice Abella writing for the majority might be trying to reevaluate, right, the evidence on the case, but by saying that she's just, right, applying the jurisprudential guidelines, which if she wanted to do that, right, reevaluating the facts is not forbidden. Um, when you're in appellate court, but there's a different standard. There's a higher, more deferential standard, and so you have to show basically a bigger mistake of the court underneath than when you're just applying the law or stating what the law is, namely what the prior case law decided um, at the Supreme Court, right, says, and that's what the federal court, federal court of appeal had to decide um, here.